ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. I've got this gut feeling, you could call it an instinct, that you'll be intrigued by today's episode of Big Ideas and Joel Pearson might agree. He's the author of The Intuition Toolkit, The New Science of Knowing What Without Knowing Why. And he is my guest today on Big Ideas. Yeah, have you ever tapped into that feeling of just knowing what you need to do next, of acting on a hunch? Is that feeling of intuition real or imagined? Can it be learnt? Can it be harnessed for good in our lives or to save us from disaster? Or is it just a whole pile of woo, weird, cosmic, out of body, beyond the brain? Neuroscientist and psychologist Professor Joel Pearson wanted to find that out. And he's perhaps not a typical scientist. He started out studying art and filmmaking before becoming a scientist and director of the Future Minds Lab at the University of New South Wales. So let's meet Joel at an event we shared in Nam, Melbourne. Let's give him a warm welcome. We are here, Joel, to discuss this wonderfully interesting book, The Intuition Toolkit, The Science of Knowing What Without Knowing Why. Why, yes. Curious, intuition. Now, before we dig into the reads of what intuition is, why were you somewhat hesitant as a scientist about even going anywhere near this topic? What makes intuition risky to study? Well, the first step when we started, it was because it was really hard to, to measure. If we can't measure it objectively and reliably in the lab, then what can we do? And so that was really the biggest obstacle. And so almost 10 years ago, we developed the first objective, reliable way to measure intuition in the lab. So it's a neuroscience lab. Um, and it's not an interview, it's not a questionnaire. So that's, when I say objective, I mean it's like a, a microscope to look at the mind or like a blood test, right? So you wouldn't answer a questionnaire to try and figure out someone's vitamin D levels in their blood, right? You take an objective test. And so you want to do that with mental things, whether that be anxiety or depression or mental imagery or intuition. So that was the first obstacle. But the probably even almost bigger was how to fit that into the larger picture, how to fit it in with a book like this into society, what does it mean? Every, lots of people define it differently. That was another obstacle. Yeah, let, let's read one definition. This comes from, I just pulled it out of a random dictionary, credible dictionary, <laughs> intuition. Quote, the ability to understand or know something based on your feelings rather than facts. Or, here's another one, without needing to think about it or use reason to discover it. Now, that sounds like a science-free zone to me. <laughs> and if a politician said to me, well, you know, I made the all-important decision based on a gut feeling, based on instinct, you'd be worried, wouldn't you? You would hope that they are informed by fact, not intuition. Yes and no. So that, and that's, this is one of the reasons I wrote the book, because I would talk to people from designers and people in making films through to CEOs and people in leadership, and they would say things like that to me in private, but they would be too embarrassed to talk about it publicly or with a client, oh. right? They'd say well, exactly what you said, oh, I'll lose credibility. I can't talk, I can't talk like that at this high level. People are going to write me off. And so that's why one of the main reasons I wrote the book, right, to try and bring some credibility, I guess, or maybe that's not the best word, but pull, pull the topic of intuition away from the taboo and build a science around it. So a politician, anyone in leadership, anyone could say, yes, I followed these rules, it's optimised with science, and I followed my intuition, I've worked in this field for a long time, for many years, therefore it's legitimate, I can trust that. And that wouldn't be like, oh my God, oh, this person used their intuition. And they're not then referring to an extra sensory skill or something outside of the human body. You actually yeah. look straight into the brain. So what do you think intuition is? Well, I have the definition in the book, which is the productive use or the learned productive use of unconscious information for better decisions or actions. Okay, it's a little bit wordy, 
Uh, there's a couple of choice, important words there. And so also let me just throw, throw it out there that like, other people are going to disagree with this definition, but I thought long and hard about this definition, and I think it's very useful for two reasons. One, it can spur science along, and we need a clear definition to really build that, that field of science of intuition. And two, I think it's the most practically productive to help people make better decisions. So if we say it's, it's tapping into you know, universal information in the ether, or the universal this thing or that thing, and the blueprint of the universe, that's really interesting as a scientist, but it's very hard to study. I don't know where to even start to study that. And I don't know really where to start to give science-backed, data-driven advice mm. to someone on how to help them make better decisions. So for those reasons, I wanted to start with the science we have. And with that definition, we can understand, explain, and measure intuition. We don't need to bring anything new into the equation. So say that again. Say the definition again so, it's, so the, it sticks in our the learnt, head. Productive, that's positive, use of unconscious information for better decisions or actions. Okay, so you share a number of different stories, fantastic stories, in the book, The Intuition Toolkit. And one of them is John Muir, who is, you know, he, a Wollongong-born boy who became one of the world's great adventurous spirits, didn't he? What happened to John that is a beautiful illustration of how you see intuition working in a positive way? Yeah, so the, the story, the, I mean, he has lots of stories. He has so he, many he, stories. He, I had to choose one. I chose the Everest story because it's Everest, but he has, you know, climbing here in, in Victoria, a story of his life being saved with intuition. But the Everest stories, they were sort of, they were setting off on the final day in the summer to, to summit, to hit the, the very top of Everest. Uh, and they were coming around, and they were still sheltered from the wind. And they were about to hit the sort of point of no return where that wind is just blowing in their faces. And they planned for months. Yeah, this, this was is a major 80s, production. Right? This is very wasn't different it? to now. Yeah, this is, yeah. You know, there's no. You, and he says this: it wasn't. They didn't have guys. They didn't have sherpas. They didn't have oxygen. They didn't have the, all the high tech everything that people who mountain climb now have. So a seriously deadly so it was, enterprise. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's, it was multiple years. In, each trip was over a year in, in prep and training. And it was the last opportunity of the year, so there was a lot of pressure. If it wasn't going to be that day and that, you know, that moment, that was it for a couple of years probably. And he's very, he, he has this iron stomach, right? He can eat basically anything off any street stall in any country, he's, he's, he's very proud of saying. And as they were approaching it, he started having this sinking feeling and he sort of talks about it almost being a sickness or being unwell at first and realising, no, it's something else. It's his intuition pulling him down, and he's this dis-ease, he calls it. Mm. And he realised that, it, that he, they shouldn't go up. It was, he's, something in his body was telling them to stop. Um, so he just said, I don't think we should go up. It's too windy, it's too cold, it's too this, it's too that. And the other peop- the, most of the other climbers were like, what are you talking about? This, come on, let's do it, this is it, come on. And he thought, and he just felt his body, and he said, no, that's it, I'm turning around, I'm done. And this was major because it wasn't like they could just do it again tomorrow. That was it. For that the, was it. Like I said, for years probably. Yeah. Mm. So he pulled out. Not everyone did. Yeah, and, and so then he, he practised using his gut response, his, his, his inner feelings of his body, many times when climbing rocks, ice, snow, doing you know, many dangerous things. So him and another, another person decided to turn around and head back down. They down-climbed the mountain. And then two others, I think, kept going to the summit. And then an hour or two later, some, they were down climbing, and the two that went up had fell and hurtled past them and almost knocked them and took them with them. But they fell to their death. Mm. And so that was this sort of you know, moving and mm. poignant story where him and two of their lives were saved by his, his strong gut feeling. And he'd honed that with experience over years, so he knew to trust it, and he trusted it. And that's key, and we'll get to that because you make the case that we can all hone our intuition. But what, and mastery was key to his story. Yes. This, this expertise, this knowledge base that he'd developed, that his body had developed, that his brain had stored away, squirreled away based on all the climbs that he'd done. But if, if you had to, so you've been investigating intuition and how it works in the brain. So yeah. what, how do you investigate intuition in the lab and yeah. what are you looking for in the brain? These unconscious processes, these clues that we have 
we know things, but we're not conscious of knowing them. Yeah, so it's, it's such a, it's, yeah, such a fant- an amazing concept, right? And so yeah. just to unpack that a little bit more, so he's climbing the mountain, right, and he's processing the, 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 how warm it is, the, how tired he's feeling, the strength of the wind and, and the way the snowflakes might be just sliding off the mountain and probably a hundred other things. Mm. So he's, he's processing all that. He's not logically and consciously thinking through each one of those things. But his brain's learned over years of mountain climbing that when the snow's like that, when the wind's pushing that way, when the clouds are moving just that certain way, those things all together predict a negative outcome, something bad, right? And he's not logically thinking through that, it just happens. So his brain's connected those things over years before. They've become linked together in the brain through learning. You've probably heard of Pavlov's dogs, associative learning, classical conditioning, maybe high school, university, or something like that, right? So those things have been linked, and his body's responding. So your body can... It gets access to the unconscious things in our brain that we're not aware of. Mm. So his, his heart rate would have gone up, he, he's, he sweats a little bit more, his body's changing, and that's what he's interpreting by this sinking feeling, this gut, so-called gut feeling. His body's tapping into the unconscious information in his brain. It's interesting because the gut has a second brain. We won't go down that rabbit hole. That is interesting. But the, that, the, but the but gut, a, yeah, a separate there kind is of a thing. sort of second brain in the gut. Um, yeah. The, the nervous system that drives how the gut works is quite a distinct well, the, entity. But the gut does produce neurotransmitters. And that's, yeah. that's not what I'm talking about here. No. And those neurotransmitters in the gut do affect mental health a little bit and cognition a little bit. But that's a different thing. Not everyone feels it in the gut, by the way. Some people feel it in the chest or the hands, tingling hands or sweating palms. Or People feel it in different parts of the body. So what have we got? We've got learning and we've got sort of feeling is in emotions mm-hmm. and it's unconscious. So when we wanted to figure out a way to measure intuition, we had some of these basic ingredients. And so we needed to find a way to recreate that in the lab whenever we wanted. And we have this way, I call it emotional inception, like the Christopher Nolan film, Inception, right? Just Doesn't, remind us of the plot so we so know. Leonardo DiCaprio is on this mission. They hack dreams, right? They put the thing and people fall asleep and they go into other people's dreams and a dream inside a dream inside a dream kind of thing. So they steal their unconscious thoughts. And they, yeah, they, well, they, they prime the main, the, the main character, primes someone and puts an idea into his head to sell, to break up this company uh, in the film. So we need to do something like that, but putting people to sleep and doing the dreams... Not bit, possible bit yet. Creepy. A little bit I creepy. I don't think you'd pass the ethics committee at your university. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good, it's an interesting idea. But um, so what we can do though, through so I'd spend, you know, I'd done my PhD looking at visual illusions, optical illusions, and there's this really cool one called binocular rivalry, which is putting different things one to each eye. So what you can do, I can present a picture to one eye, and then flash bright colours in the other eye, and those flashing colours are so strong that they suppress whatever is in the other eye, right? Because our eyes get two different data streams as you look around the room. That's how you see in 3D. Um, But when you do that, you don't see the picture. It's just unconscious. It's gone. But your eye still processes it. Your visual cortex still processes it. The information gets into your brain. But you're not conscious that it's in the brain. No idea it's there, yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. Very powerful experimental technique. Why? What can you test? so, so So we use... Instead of a normal picture, emotional, you know, a picture of a snake or a spider or positive, a you know, puppy dog or something. And we can see that the emotional parts of the brain still respond. So the limbic system, the amygdala, still responds to the scary image. And the person in the lab has no idea we're exposing that image because their brain sees it or processes it, but there's no consciousness, there's no awareness of it. So that was what we used to study intuition. We, that's one of the ingredients, right? Getting emotional information, a feeling in there, but it's unconscious. And clearly none of your experimental subjects were snake charmers, though. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> or so spider t- lovers. Yeah, no. We, <laughs> so we use, yeah, we, t- we tend to use nasty images, unfortunately, but, you know, to a, within a degree, you know, not really terrifying things, but we need some emotion there. And, and um, so we use positive and negative images, and we're presenting those to one eye, suppressing yep. them, don't see them. At the same time, all people have to do is make a really simple decision. We have these little dots on the screen, they're moving to the left or to the right. And that's 
all they're doing. I see some flickering colours and the dots are moving. And what questions are you asking of the, them, of the, the data the that you collect? moving left or right. But what happens is that then whenever the dots are moving to the left, that's the answer, we show a negative image. And whenever the dots are moving to the right, we show a positive image. And we do that over and over. And the dots are quite noisy and messy, um, so it's not it's always easy. And so here comes the learning component, that people have to learn that the positive is, is associated with the dots moving one way and the negative, the dots moving the other way. And what we see is, over a short period of time, the brain learns to use this emotional information, even though it's unconscious, to answer the left or right thing. And they start responding more quickly, their confidence goes up, and their accuracy goes up as well. Mm. So I won't go and you know I won't get any more I won't nerd out any more on the details there, but so you have the unconscious, the emotion, the learning, and then the conscious decision making. So that was sort of the ingredients. Did you come out of this going, oh, intuition, this sense is a real thing? It's it's more than a feeling. It's yeah. actually a cognitive process in our brains. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, so is a feeling, by the way, of course. It, it is, but but it's something different. The feeling is attached to. A process, but on a fundamental level, it was it was pretty amazing because people, the, what the brain was doing, it was combining unconscious emotional information in real time with a fully conscious decision. The dots, right? And it's just tapping into that extra information, and people are doing better when they have access to that information. Okay, so why do you think? And I want to come to the question of of how you think we can hone that information because you've done some science looking at the way in which intuition can be both enhanced but also uh, can be a problem for us as well. Yeah. Um, but why do you think intuition is, is a good thing? Because I wonder whether intuition can also be about tapping into biases that we have, prejudices that we have, you know, patterns that we've learnt, assumptions that we've learnt that actually can, it's like we just sort of get on the railway track and that's what we believe because we believe it because somehow we believe it. And that can be a problem, can't it? Absolutely, yeah. So that's one of the important things. I'm not saying intuition is always good and we should always use it. That's kind of the message of the book, right? It's nuanced. It's not black and white. There are times when we should use it and certain topics when we should use it, Mm. but times when we should not use it. So when when do you think we should use it because you you point for example to the interesting world of business where people are often making decisions under time pressure uh, with limited facts at yeah. hand uh, and you're saying well that's when intuition could be useful and I would say hang on a tick isn't that part of the problem don't we need the business world and politicians and leaders to use facts more, not just... Oh, we do, absolutely. Yeah. Well, if you have the facts and, and you have full access to the conscious, rational information, absolutely should use that and rely on that. In our experiments, so when you, as you take that away or you make people have, have to respond really, really quickly, the faster they have to respond, the more they'll start relying on the unconscious emotional information or, or using intuition. So it's really those situations... And business is kind of moving more and more in that direction where there's less, the information is more ambiguous, there's more uncertainty in the world with everything changing at a faster rate. And so a lot of leadership talks about having to make decisions with less clear information and make them more quickly, which is the, the situations we see in the lab that is suited to intuition. Now, the bias thing is really interesting. Yeah. So, so just like with artificial intelligence, you train an AI on biased information it's, it's going to give you biased answers. It's going to give you, and we saw some of that with uh, some of the early AI models. And intuition is the same. Mm. So I mentioned this in the book a bit. If you train your intuition on false data, on data that's out of date, or anything that's just not valid... Or on misinformation. On misinformation, yeah. Your intuition is going to lead you astray. You should not use it in that situation. Mm. So we have to be very careful what we're training our intuition on, right? Junk goes in, junk will come out, and I use examples in the book, you know, of you know, doing a movie marathon of movies, films from the 1960s, 70s, where you know things have changed a lot between then and now, and race and gender and all kinds of things. But if you import enough of that information, you'll take it on board and you'll train your intuition, but it'll be out of date, for example. And this is the problem with artificial intelligences right now. The machine learning 
the algorithms are being trained up on data sets that are full of all sorts of biases and prejudices and sexist and racist data and all sorts of crazy information, yeah. the sort of information we find on the internet because that's often a data set that is being used to train. We are, we, we are subject to the same vulnerabilities, aren't we? Yeah, there mm. we are. Yeah. Mm. I mean... Look at COVID and humans what happened are biased, there. Though. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's... People get very upset about AI being biased, but most... It's pretty. It's almost impossible to to avoid a bias in a human as well. So, yeah. Okay. So, you have a very interesting little uh, acronym that you use. Mm, yeah. Um, just say what it is, and then let's pick it apart a little bit yeah. to help us all understand how you think we can optimize our intuition, but when to run a mile from trusting our intuition <laughs> as well. When it puts it as puts us at deep risk. Yeah, so I coined a word, because I wanted a word for that and there wasn't really a word for it. So there were situations where people thought they were using their intuition and, I, and I, didn't, I didn't think they were. They were being misled or they thought it was and it wasn't. So I came up with this word misintuition as a misfiring of intuition. Every time I say it now, I think of like misintuition, like a Miss Universe competition or Miss America competition, but it's, yeah, it's misfiring of intuition. So there, yeah, there are indeed situations where we can feel like we're using our intuition and we're not, we're using something else. So yeah, the acronym is SMILE, these five rules of when we should or shouldn't use intuition. So what are they? Yeah, so the first one is for self-awareness, to check out, to be aware of your emotional state. So if you're anxious, if you're stressed, depressed, um, or really, really happy, you've just fallen in love or just won the lottery or something, don't rely on your intuition. Why not? So if you think about the way I describe it, the way we've been talking about it, you have these signals, your body's tapping into these unconscious uh, information in the brain, and we feel it as an emotion, right? Now, if you're being hit with strong positive or negative emotion from something else, the state you're in, you're just not going to pick up on those subtle signals of intuition. Mm. They're going to be sort of, you know, it's a tsunami, it's going to wipe them out kind of thing. Um, there's just too much noise in the system when you're in one of those states. And we're also biased to, to emotional thinking and other things like that, right? So we might have a wonderful date, but actually, really, we should sometimes not let the uh, kind of romance of the situation cloud our intuition that this is not a person we should have a second date with. There, Possibly, there's some nice yeah. examples like that in the book. Well, yeah, but, but in general, yeah, so, so if, you, if you want to use intuition, the first, you know, S is for check yourself, be self-aware, and if you are too low or too high or in a non-sort of balanced state, then try and do something to bring yourself back a little bit before you need to make the decision and practice intuition. And then there's M, mastery, which we've talked about. Yeah. Do you need to have a certain degree of mastery? Are we talking about 10,000 hours here, <laughs> which is actually a myth? The classic 10,000 uh, hours, yeah. Uh, so you know, not, in order a real to... thing if people don't know. that it's The 10,000 hours was a sort of convenient thing that was kind of... Even Malcolm Gladwell's now it's a thing, you know, that was 10,000 hours is not a particularly meaningful number. His proposal it's... was that you need 10,000 hours of practice on something to be considered a master. Um, but do you... Yeah. You need a certain degree or a certain type of mastery in order to confidently appeal to your intuition in a situation? Yeah, and the big question, yeah. So it's very hard to know how much you need because yeah. it depends on what the thing is and it depends on you. So the way the brain learns, right? So we, we know that you can learn something in an instant, right? And that's what effectively PTSD is something like that, right? A single car crash or a bad event and you can have the learning is so strong that it bothers you for years and years afterwards. So there's that kind of learning which... A single instance is too strong a learning through to very, very weak. So it depends on how strong the emotion is of the situation. Mm. So the stronger it is and the more quickly, the faster the feedback, you get the emotion, the outcome of the decision, um, the less learning, the less experience you need. So you can kind of map it onto that, but there's no easy, simple answer I can give. You know, you need 20 hours or something, but you do need experience with the thing. Right, you need to have practiced tennis, practiced chess for quite a while before you can become an intuitive tennis player or an intuitive chess player. 
So I think I in smile is uh, impulse and addiction, isn't yeah. it? And so you are emphatic. People who are addicted <laughs> should not trust their intuition, which seems a bit cruel to me given that a hell of a lot of us are addicted to something. There's addiction and there's addiction. Yeah. yeah. So there's, if you're, yeah, there's, there's shades of grey there. So, yeah, most of us in this day and age are addicted to something, caffeine or, you phone. know. Phone. Phone, yeah. So, I mean, the real message with that is not to confuse the feeling of addictive things with intuition. So the pull towards the drug or the alcohol or the social media or the gambling, whatever it is, that pull can feel very natural. And, it, it, it's, and it, people can sometimes confuse that or intentionally or by accident with intuition. Give us an example. Oh, just, say, you know, like, oh, well, my intuition's telling me I should check my email now because it's probably tapping into something, you know, I've probably oh, yeah. got an important email now, I should, it's, my, it's my intuition speaking, get, get, I'll get my phone out, right? So that would be an example where I try and convince myself it was something important based on intuition on me picking up on the signals of something happening that therefore I should have an important email or something. But that's not the case. It just feels that way because of the thing's addictive. Yeah. Now, intuitive eating is a thing and there are, there are a few books on that, right? So that, that was quite popular um, a decade or two ago. What, that somehow you should know what your body needs? Yeah, there's this movement of, of sort of letting yourself go and eating as much of whatever you want for as long as you want and, and just letting it go and doing that. And then over, like I'm not, there's more detail to it than that, but then over time you'll get to some sort of balanced, steady state where you eat too much and then back. And I think the idea can work if you had, say, a whole food diet and you weren't eating highly processed food, but with the foods we have now, there's so many billions going into engineering to be highly addictive that it's, it's more in the category of addiction and drugs, right, yeah. with a lot of foods. And so I just think that's a dangerous We'd idea. We'd be sitting there just piled up with cakes all around Yeah, you're us not going to feel safe. You're not going to feel full. Cakes. Gonna We'd keep... have a lovely old yeah. time. Our body so would love it, though. I, I know, there's a lot of people that love that idea. So if a lot of people listening, you know, are going to be saying, what? No, I love the idea of intuitive eating. But I think it's, yeah, if it's not whole foods, then I think it's a dangerous idea. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and the last two in SMILE are L and E. L for low probability, E for environment. Yeah. So I, I use the L because it just works so well with the acronym, yeah, it's right? A, yeah. It's really all probabilistic thinking, so thinking numbers. We're just really bad at that. We don't, you know, we saw uh, last week in Sydney where we had the, the, the shark attack, the shark bite incident, and people were terrified. They didn't want to go into the water, right? And even though it's, you can swim in the harbour every day for your whole life and it's still safer than driving in your car kind of thing, right? But we, we just don't get those probabilities, whether it's something negative or positive, buying lottery tickets. And so we just... There are lots and lots of examples of this. So when it comes to anything around numbers and probabilities, don't use intuition. Don't feel your way to an answer. Go back to the numbers, look at the numbers, work it out, do what you need to do with the computer, don't try and feel your way to the answer. And what's the environment got to do with intuition? Yeah, so that's, that goes back to the mastery. So that's the learning part. So the kind of learning that humans do and our brains do behind intuition is context-specific, environment-specific. So I give the example in the book of Steve Jobs who mastered intuition at work, at Apple, product design, running the company. But then later in life, when he was making decisions at home about his health, he made some poor decisions and he put off certain treatments and a lot of people say that's why he ended up dying. So he's like, interesting because he at one point, I think, said something like, uh, intuition is more powerful than the intellect. He did. He, he was a huge fan. He Do went you to believe India. that? Well, I, th I, don't, I think it's that's a false dichotomy. I think it's part of it's the intellect. It's a crazy it's, dichotomy. It's built into it, right? It's not... It's like saying... There's like a relationship. The emotions and feelings are in my brain, as so is my thinking, so is my speech, so is my vision. It's all part of the... It's all in there in the brain. It's all And feelings... We, we, we separate out feelings and, and, um, and rational thought. And in fact, you need feelings in order to engage in rational Absolutely, thought. Yeah. There's a close relationship there. Yeah, and, and if, you, if you... As a side note, there are cases where people have had um, traumatic brain injuries and had the sort of... They separate their emotion and they have trouble from decision-making and they can't make decisions. Yeah. I'll go, they'll, they'll just write a pros and cons list forever. And without that extra nudge of the feeling behind something, it's very hard to make, you know, reasonable and quick decisions. So back to Steve so, Jobs, he, had a gr he was a great fan of intuition. Yeah. Uh, but in fact, you think that he... And in the office at Apple, in, in where he had the mastery and where it was built and he'd learnt and practised it for years, it was fantastic. When he was at home or for a different topic, not so much. Because he, he neglected so to have cancer. Well, he made yeah. a choice. He made a choice not, not to, to have the cancer treatment. treatment. Yeah. yeah. 
or and mainstream so medicine. When we when we learn things like like intuition, if I'm learning intuition now, what I'm learning now, this room and actually all of you are part of that learning, right? This is classic. The classic case of you come home drunk and throw your keys somewhere, and the next morning you can't find your keys. You have a drink in the afternoon. Ah,、oh, I put them over here, right? So, it's the place and the state, actually. So, it's actually true. If, if, if you're highly caffeinated, stressed, or anxious, or drunk, what you learn in that state is better remembered when you're back in that state, whether it be internal or external.、Mm. So, the location.、Yeah. Mm. So that smile, yeah. Are there are there questions about intuition that you would really love to unravel that you that that are kind of lying ahead for you as a scientist, saying I've got to I've got to understand this more. Oh, I mean, there's lots, yeah. So it's early in the sort of the development of the field of intuition. So we've got to study the training of it. How can we maximise it? How how can it transfer? Can it? Tr- How does it? We don't know much about it in sport. That's something I really want to study with sports teams, right? Because people—that's that's one of the classic examples, right? If you, if you have to run left or right with a football in your hand, you are basically relying on intuition. And we know through some really interesting science that physical movements. Remember my definition? I said decisions or actions.、Mm. So when you move your body, your your movements actually can tap into the unconscious as well in really interesting ways, which is a whole another. Another show, maybe, but、um, yeah. So when you're playing sport, you are t- literally tapping into all this extra unconscious information. So we want to study that more. We want to understand how that works more. How you can train? Can you build an app on your phone that might let you train? And how much would that transfer? We don't know the answer to questions like that. The sex and gender differences. Everyone always asks that question. We don't know a lot about that. When you give、uh, men and women questionnaires, women report more using intuition a lot more. They also report differences in emotion and what's called magical thinking and all kinds of different things. Except for when it comes to sport and gambling, then men are off the chart in superstitious and all kinds of things. Is that so?、Uh, yeah. How interesting. Yeah.、Mm. Um, and the individual differences is that's one of the biggest、mm. things. So. And what shapes those? Is it、Why? temperament? Is it my relationship to risk, or、yeah. is it whether or not I'm comfortable with uncertainty and leaning in in some way to uncertainty, or、yeah. those sorts of things? There's lots of possible explanations. I think there's this word called interoception, which is just internal perception. Am I thirsty? Hungry? Need to go to the bathroom? That kind of thing. And we can sort of feel our heart beating. Some of us can feel the heartbeat just by sitting there. Other people can't do that. Yeah. So I think that is part of the equation. This. Sort of because your body is tapping into the unconscious and it's turning into feelings in your body, and some people are very sensitive to that. Other people are not, and I think that's an important、uh, component to intuition. And then Joel Pearson, there are actually natural living experiments, humans who embody intuition, don't they? Because they they experience something called face blindness because of a neurological issue that they're、yeah. having. So tell us about that. And have you studied any of those people? So prosopagnosia, the、I、face think, blindness. Yes, yeah, yep. Yeah, we we haven't studied that. We're starting to look at it. So we also study mental imagery and the imagination. So there's all, there's a subcategory of that where people can recognise faces, but they can't imagine faces. So it's even a more specific. So you can have you can you, you can have trouble just recognising people by their face, or you can have trouble imagining it. So we're studying the imaginary part of that. But we haven't actually studied the prosopagnosia, the perceptual part of that. And there's also people though who their their brain registers that they've seen the world, but they don't have the oh, so blind sight, blind sight. That's blind what I'm sight. thinking、yes, of. Blind sight. If I talk about this, they're the natural experiment. The yeah, people so with the, blind the, the, the sight. Blind Tell sight. us about them. So it's a, it, it's it's basically intuition in action, and sort of what we could all get to. So this is people that have had typically damage to visual cortex, which is a pointy bit at the back of your head. So they get damage, unfortunately, to that part of the. Uh, their brain, and so they, they can't see. Maybe half their visual field goes black, so everything on the left is black. They can't see anything. You put something there, they can't see it. Sometimes it's the whole visual field. And what people have discovered is that even though they say, "I can't see anything," absolutely not. It's all black. And you can see on YouTube videos of people doing this. You get them to walk down a hallway,、mm. and they'll just stop in front of an object, and then step to the side, step forward, keep walking. And they say, "Why did you do that?" And they, I, I don't know. I just wanted to. Or you can say, "Are there any shapes around you up in the air?" You put, you put the shapes up on a screen. They say, "No, I can't see anything." And they say, "Sure, just guess." And they point to the shape. 
So something really interesting is happening there. There's, the information is getting into their brains and they're processing it, but it's completely unconscious, but they have access to it. And so that, do they become of use to you as a, a living experiment in the way that Oliver Sacks wrote about people who had unusual brains? Uh, um, I mean, we all have unusual brains is my argument, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. but still individuals can provide incredible insight and incredible lens into an experience, can't they? Yeah, because th th there's sort of the walking example of what intuition can be. We can see it like... It's sort of something we can all, you know, aspire to in a, in a strange way, but to tap into that information and use it, even if we're not aware of it. We know it, but we don't know that we know it. Yeah, but we can use it. We can use it. Whether it's yeah. an action or a decision. Uh, and it's similar with, with people with blindsight, and you show them emotional images. They say, you know, no, I can't see anything, but they, they, they can start feeling the information as well as taking the action. What about um, instinct? You know, yeah. we hone an instinct over uh, the course of evolution in a way, not, not obviously as individuals, but over time um, we've developed a human nature that builds on multiple generations of understanding. Mm. D does that have a relationship to intuition? Yeah, so a lot of people will, will use those two words interchangeably, mm. so, so instinct and intuition. But I, so the idea, instinct is really something that is more permanent like you're talking about, it's, we've evolved with it. It's there from day one. It's like you give the baby a lemon, they bite into it and their face screws up. And it's That's, so tied to our that. biological it's makeup. It's biological, yeah. Mm. The same way that bees communicate or turtles swim back to the beach they were, they, they were born or they hatched from. Um, there's these things in animals and in humans that we're born with. Um, in the book I talk about um, our fear of uncertainty, something we mentioned earlier. Um, our craving for comfort. Uh, dislike of discomfort is an interesting one. Yeah. So why I think instincts like that are, uh, why we need to dis distinguish them from intuition is that they're hardwired. So as the environment changes, like it does now, where once upon a time being terrified of uncertainty was really useful and would save your life, now it becomes you know, a hindrance, a problem, because you need to embrace uncertainty a lot, like we talked about in business. So that instinct is hardwired and it's there and we've got to, it becomes maladaptive. And that's not the case with intuition. So intuition is dynamic, it learns on the fly, so it adapts to the environment. So that, that's the, the distinction between the two. Mm. Yes, I still am sceptical though about the benefits of intuition. In a yeah. time when we are uh, increasingly, there's anti-science, there's misinformation, people are appealing to their own biases and prejudices. Uh, and that's having a massive impact on how we experience the pandemic, what people chose or not chose not to do, who they vote for, etc. You know, I want more data. I want to be informed by more data, more facts, not just yeah. what I think my body knows. Yeah, oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm a scientist. I'm not against data. So more data, the better, absolutely. Um, but a couple of things were worth mentioning. Whether we have enough data or there's data or no data, people, a lot of people are going to feel things either way and intuition is just going to come up, whether it's what I'm calling intuition or misintuition, whether it's false or, or, or useful information. So if it's going to be there and some people are going to take notice of it, some people are going to ignore it, then we need some rules like this. We need a science around that. Otherwise, it's going to be misleading. Mm. So Not we, all scientists think that there's something in intuition though. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, there is a, you know, some psychologists steer right away from this stuff. You lead into it. Yeah. I mean, there traditionally has been an argument in psychology. Some people saying it's good, we should trust it. Other people saying, no, it's really bad. There's all these biases, race, cognitive bias of this, of this. Yep. So Kahneman would be someone that sort of talks about it more in a negative way, even though he doesn't really talk about intuition much. Um, but like I said, it's not a black and white thing. They're both right. It's both good and bad. It depends when and what for. And so that's kind of the point of when you understand the way the brain works, the way learning works, the way this works and that works, emotions work, then you start to see that it can, you can optimise it and you can have times when you can trust it. Other times, doesn't mean it's going to be right all the time and 100%, absolutely not. But it's the first step really that we have towards understanding it and trusting it and using it as a practical guide. And it's yeah. an idea that persists, so it's worth interrogating. 
And that's what we're doing here together on Big Ideas on ABCRN. I'm Natasha Mitchell and I'm joined today by Australian neuroscientist and psychologist Joel Pearson. We're diving into whether intuition is a real thing in the brain or the stuff of fiction and the far out. His book is called The Intuition Toolkit, The New Science of Knowing What Without Knowing Why. How do you use intuition <laughs> in your life, both personally and then in your working life as a scientist? I use it, yeah, as a, as a parent with um, young kids. I use it when, with my kids when they were young, particularly when they were, uh, you know, the first time you have a baby who's sick and you don't, and, and then talk to a doctor and they say, are they still themselves? And you're like, what? What do you mean are they still themselves? And then you think about it and go, oh, and then it actually, you, and you look at them and you, you realise that you can answer that question, but you don't really, you're not really sure how you answer that question. And you see that they are themselves, the sounds they're making, the crying, are, are them, they are themselves, or they're not. They're like, something's different about them. So I use it, yeah, as a but parent. But in that situation, as yeah. a new parent, you're not a master. So should you trust one, your no, intuition? Not, but, but after, you know, a month or after some time, you, I think pretty quickly, you know, yeah. You, you, um, yeah, I use it, um, I love using it doing sport when I run. I love to run through bush tracks and I try and get into a flow state and use my intuition for foot placement. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I use it. On tracks that you've, you've been through many yeah, times? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, if I'm really tired or if I'm stressed, I, I, I'll, that'll be, you know, I'll, fall, I'll slip and stuff. I'll, I'll do poor foot placement. I use it at work a lot. So I use it um, reading scientific papers, trying to figure out what new data means when we see an unusual pattern or something and new data coming from your experiment. Which direction, which, which exper- you know, there's, there's an infinite number of experiments a lab can run on any, you know, any one time, so how do you choose? And I'll let intuition guide me there. And often in those situations, whether it's reading a science paper or the, deciding on an experiment, it's not like I'll go, hmm, so let's, this, I'll start reading the scientific paper and very early on I'll have a funny feeling that mm. something's a bit off. And I won't try and figure out where that's coming from. I'll just go, I'll note it down and go, hmm, that's interesting. Let's see if that pans out. So I don't care which 20 variables about the thing I'm reading is triggering this feeling in me because I just accept that it's there. It's a niggle. But I try and keep, and I talk about this in the book, the way to try and like, to keep a diary of these things, keep track. Mm. It's the idea of keep track, is it working or not working for you? And how can you improve that? Yeah, yeah so if, if, I, if I wanted to try and hone the power of my intuition, where would I start? Start with... Something small. Small, yeah. So a lot of people want to start with a huge, should I buy the house or not? Should I get divorced or I get married? Or like these big questions, right? Because the emotion comes up with those and it's very hard to not start thinking emotionally or have emotional driven thinking. Um, but I think it's better, to, it's safer to practice with small things first and feel it in the body, make sure the five rules are met, practice that, absorb those five rules so they become almost automatic, and then just practice it every day and keep, keep track of how you do. Intriguing. Yes, we'd love to get your questions uh, for the last little time. Yes. Let that mic come to you. Thanks so, thank you so much for the session here today. I'm really interested to know who you've been reading when you've been thinking about your work, which writers, which philosophers or scientists have had a great influence on your own practice? Interesting question, yeah. Yeah, good question. I mean, probably people that, names that people might not know of. So mostly like scientific papers from a journal. So I, every week I'm reading papers. When I said reading papers before, that's what I meant, not newspapers. Um, sorry, I might not have said that. Not the cryptic crosswords, no. Um, interesting question. Would intuition work with those? Interesting. Um, yeah, so, so like I said, we, so we'd been studying consciousness for years before and the way we do that is to render something like the, the inception thing, render it unconscious and see how it affects behaviour, see how it affects perception, thinking. And we've we'd done lots of different experiments like that before we started doing the intuition stuff. So all the people, I mean, there's two... You know, a century, a century of, of, of experimental psychologists, of neuroscientists, less so philosophy. I mean, I have a love-hate relationship with philosophy. Controversial. And <laughs> <laughs> um, that's another topic for another. But a lot of, too many philosophers 
speak and write in a way to make things very complicated. And there's something I'm like... And scientists don't. They try... Well, I don't know. I don't. I don't know whether... I won't speak for all scientists, but I have the op, I have, my philosophy is that the more complex the thing is, the more work you have to put in. Yeah. You have to do the heavy lifting, right, if you want someone to... to you don't want the reader to do the heavy lifting and have to sit there for hours trying to figure out and look up these five words to figure out what the sentence means, right? And so, anyway, yeah. getting sidetracked. You've just you've um, described my life mission as a science journalist, basically. <laughs> the harder it is, the more fun it is to untangle for a listener. <laughs> oh, the, yeah, true. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, so, you know, a century of scientific research on the brain, on learning, on, on learning being context-specific, on the people that, you know, did learning, memorising words in scuba gear underwater. I talk about in the book, and they had to remember the words on the surface or learn them on the surface and remember them underwater. That's the context-specific learning stuff I mentioned, stuff like that. Um, But, yeah, I mean, the consciousness stuff is the most interesting. Blending conscious, unconscious information, find our way through the world is a really fascinating thing. And and often the unconscious, I think, does a lot more than we realise, right? You, when someone says, you know, I only eat, I only eat organic food, da, 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 and you follow them and they just pull into McDonald's on the way home, right? And pe- people will do things against their best interest. And we have all these unconscious influences that drive mm. our behaviour in really interesting ways. And that makes the intersection between psychology and economics fascinating yes, as well. Yes, yes. Uh, and I think you should give credit to Pavlov's dogs in there too. And all those lab animals. Although they're actually really... Uh, Nasty experiments. It right? was an awful experiment. Uh, early draft of the book, I had a lot more debt, and I was like, this is just. I noticed that you skipped depressing. over that. Yep, two controversial to talk well, about. And I was like, come yuck. on. They did yuck. nasty things to dogs, yeah. We've got a question here. Thank you. Um, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on the relationship between like age and how much we should rely on intuition. Because like, maybe you're younger, you know less stuff, you have to rely more on intuition. Maybe you're older and you have like more to draw on to guide your intuition. Or maybe it's the other way around because. When you're younger, you're a bit quicker. Maybe you can think through things faster and vice versa. I'm not sure. Is, do you have any thoughts yeah. on that? I love that question. It's an interesting question because people have been asking me about, yeah, children and kids and what can, at what age can you use intuition? I don't really have a good answer for that. So I haven't seen good data on that. We are starting some experiments now, but, but they're just starting. I can't really speak to it yet. But it's a great question. Yeah, I don't have a really good answer. I'm sorry. Can we grab one more? Thanks. Yeah. Um, just, just going back to your own experience with intuition... I feel like the answers you gave before were quite generalised. Yeah. Is there one specific instance in your own professional life that you can credit to intuition? Oh, the, I mean, I mean, there's lots. There's in designing the the the, the research, the emotional inception stuff in the book, right? So it's 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 often there are lots of small decisions where I'll, it seems like it's impossible, but I'll be like, no, it's something. I have a feeling that it, that it is possible. Like the, lots of little things like that, which will be a turning point at a crucial time in in the path in some direction for research or science, and simply having that intuition that there is a way forward and we can get we, we can measure that because most of the stuff we do is measuring the mind. Yeah, that would be multiple sort of critical turning points with multiple experiments there. I've got a question for you to wrap, and that is. So you started in fine art and filmmaking yeah. and then transitioned into science at some point. And I wonder if that sensibility lives large in you, that, that creative spirit, which scientists are creative too, but is there a sort of interesting hybridity that you think has given you a particular insight into this, this question of intuition? Probably. Like I mentioned discovery right at the beginning and that's, for me it, was, it took me a while to realise what... Because even in high school, I was like, I was either doing art, painting, drawing, or or I was in one of the science labs. That was like my two things, right? But yeah. it was like I couldn't decide. And it was like architecture, no science, no fine arts, film, no. Then back to science, and yeah, it was like I kept changing. Mm. Um, so I've been to a lot of universities, but it was discovery, which was the driving thing, which is like discovering how you could move a pencil or a paintbrush and what would come off the page or how. Um, combining certain moving visuals with music would make someone feel in a film. That, to me, felt like discovery, the way discovering stuff about the brain does. The kind of, as you said, I'm not your standard scientist, and 
my reasons for doing scientists may be a bit different to some other people. I don't know, I almost take like a venture capitalist approach where I think what I want to do is attack topics which have the highest probability of discovering something really exciting. If you're going to do it, it's not like crosswords. You don't want to just solve puzzles for the sake of solving puzzles. You want to dig deep. You want to take on something that's risky because if there's even that 1% chance it's going to discover something totally different and highly impactful, it's worth taking the risk. So I kind of have that approach. And it's, to me, it makes sense logically, intuitively, but it's also more exciting that way. Mm. I don't, there's, something, there's something that tickles me more doing science that way. Right? For me, it's about discovery. For me, it feels like you're in, you know, it's a couple hundred years ago and you're in a wooden boat and you bump into a new continent. And it's like, what is this? Where are we? What have we found? It, it feels a bit like that. Like it's like just, you know, brushing the dirt away and some gold there or something is, is the best way I can describe it. And so for me, it's one and the same. But for a lot of other people, that seems weird that science and art should be the same. But for me, it kind of is. Not weird for me at all. I think they're Fantastic. totally <laughs> intertwined. It's a wonderful thing. And it's a wonderful thing to have had Joel Pearson here tonight. The Intuition Toolkit, the new science of knowing what without knowing why. Uh, lovely to talk to you tonight. Thanks for joining us on Big Ideas and here at the bookshop. Thank you, Nick Tucker. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Neuroscientist and psychologist Professor Joel Pearson, my guest today on Big Ideas. He's from the University of New South Wales. And you can get hold of his new book. It's called The Intuition Toolkit, The New Science of Knowing What Without Knowing Why. It's published by Simon & Schuster Australia. That event was recorded at Reading's Bookshop in the heart of Nam, Melbourne. Hey, next episode of Big Ideas, Holly Ringland, author of the blockbuster bestseller The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart. She's going to be talking about creativity and overcoming her fears. With each fear that I feel, like self-doubt, the inner critic, imposter syndrome, fear of failure, I meet each of those things with a mindset. Once I wrote all of those down, for example, like when I feel fear, I meet it with play. When I feel racked with self-doubt, I practice self-compassion. So I've written all of these eight things down. And then again, just in my mind, I thought about what incredible individual acts of bravery we each exhibit, even when nobody is watching. When we meet fear and don't let it trample us and no one else might ever know it's just stuff that we're doing it might be getting out of bed and getting dressed and leaving the house that feels impossible one morning but maybe we meet that with like you know I'm going to wear my special brooch because that's going to make me feel really good and I'm going to be I'm going to put on some lipstick I'm going to wear my favorite jacket I'm going to put my earpods in and listen to a song all of those tiny little things are personal truths and courage and they are magic when Apathy is so seductive and we don't give into it. That is where all of the eight fears and the eight things I meet them with when I put them down on a piece of paper, that's my toolkit. The ever insightful Holly Ringland next on Big Ideas. Great to have you company today. I'm Natasha Mitchell. The show is produced by myself, Karen Zavanovitz and Claire Slattery. We are your little Big Ideas team. We love bringing you this show. And you can catch up with any episode of Big Ideas, including this one, using the ABC Listen mobile app. It is free. You just download it to your phone from your app store and look for Big Ideas and hit follow. Catch you next time. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.